Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, it's the July 4th holiday weekend. Don't have to remind any of you of that, but certainly not a traditional one. The coronavirus has made a comeback forcing Governor Gavin Newsom to close bars and indoor dining in 19 counties and lead other counties to slow down the reopening process that really looked extremely promising not so long ago. It wasn't that long ago, Lewis, and all of this is certainly bad news, and it's really casting a shadow on superintendents and school boards who are trying to plan a multiple scenario for the reopening of schools while trying to predict which one will apply. Some districts plan to open early, you know, as soon as six weeks from now in mid-August. That's according to their schedule that they had already planned, right? Yeah, that's right, Lewis. And they're struggling with the uncertainty of knowing which families want to continue with distance learning at home and which ones want to go back to school if schools are open. And you've got to feel for superintendents and the staff that are really trying to figure this whole thing out. Hey, and don't forget about the poor parents We'll be talking with our reporter, Zadie Stavely, who's been talking with parents who are also agonizing about what awaits their kids in the fall. And one of the people trying to figure all of this out and is in the thick of state policy making on the issue is Linda Darling-Hammond. She's president of the State Board of Education, also president of the Learning Policy Institute in Palo Alto. Linda is on the line. Welcome, Linda. Great to be here. So let me just ask you, uh, you know, the question of the day, the hour, the month. What is your general view of how things are looking for reopening in the fall? I mean, on the one level, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a report this past week really recommending that kids need to be back in school for their health and, of course, for their education. At the same time, we have this very concerning spike in COVID-positive cases and um, very, very concerning, to say the least. Yes, and, you know, that kind of puts it in a nutshell. Uh, It's a highly variable situation, and it's going to vary by geography, by density, by parent preference, and a variety of other factors that are in play. So when the American Academy of Pediatrics put out that report, which was, you know, based on reasonable reading of the data. They did get an, a very large pushback from others in the, both in the medical community and from folks in the society at large saying, well, what about these cases? What about this thing? What about the people who are at home who may be at high risk, even if the kids are not at high risk, et cetera? So I think that, you know, there is some useful indication that, in settings where safety precautions have been taken, including in other countries, which we've studied at the Learning Policy Institute, children generally are not transmitters of the COVID virus. Uh, and if everyone is wearing masks, and if social distancing is thoughtfully done, and if there are no contact sports, uh, and a variety of other factors, opening schools, for the most part, can be a, a doable thing. In some cases, we'll be able to open schools, certainly in the parts of the state that are less populous, where there's been 
you know, less infection uh, rates and, you know, uh, fewer challenges. And I think there'll be many bigger questions in the highly populated parts of the state and the Los Angeles area and the Bay Area, where you have to both worry about can you put in place all of the requirements for a safe environment for everyone, including the fact that you may need more space for some social distancing, as well as the masks and testing and tracking and so on. What are you hearing? Because the state has come out with its guidance and counties coming out with their own guidances. But now we have this new information with these new infections and increased hospitalizations. Are you hearing that districts are now having to really think twice about whether they can proceed with these plans? Most of the folks I know have at least a plan A and a plan B. They'd like to bring kids back to school. They're trying to figure out how many kids they can bring back to school. Uh, Maybe it's the younger kids first and then, you know, the older kids stay in distance learning until they figure out the next steps of how to use the buildings and how to use all the staff and how to be sure that all the personal protective equipment and everything else is in place. Some of them are thinking about hybrids, you know, uh, Monday, Wednesday schedule for some kids, a Tuesday, Thursday in class and something at home on the other days. But people, generally speaking, want to be coming back and they're having to adjust their plans every time we get a new report about, you know, changes in the infection rates. But one thing we know it's going to involve is distance learning. And Linda, in his executive order in March, the governor said to districts, you'll be paid if you do distance learning to the extent feasible. And what we found out, it turned out to be three months. And there were huge variations in the quality and the extent of distance learning, as well as what we suppose will be the extent of learning loss. And so now in the bill accompanying the budget, the legislature set expectations for distance learning. And I wonder if you could describe what are those? What are districts supposed to do in order to qualify for the funding that the governor has promised them? The legislation that was just enacted and announced, I guess, last week calls for holding harmless the average daily attendance of districts if they follow certain guidelines, and those include, if there is distance learning, uh, documenting daily attendance and participation for each student every day, and daily participation can include evidence of participation in online activities, completion of regular assignments, completion of assessments, contacts between employees and pupils, parents and guardians. There is some experience base with this across the country, as well as in California with virtual schools and how do you count attendance. But there's also an insistence that uh, there should be some kind of uh, synchronous instruction every day for at, at least a part of the day in distance learning. And I think that's a really critical piece. There's also an expectation that if you are going to engage in distance learning, you must ensure that there are devices and connectivity for every every student who would be engaged in distance learning. And this is important not only for the academic give and take, but for the social and emotional contact that's necessary for the personalization that is, you know, an important part of the school experience. So why is that live instruction online, face-to-face instruction, why is that important? Kids uh, need to be not only uh, doing work at home alone on the kitchen table, (laughs) which is what, you know, sending packets home is. They need those explanations. The teacher needs to see how they're engaging and 
whether they you know have questions, they need to be in groups with other kids. And there are now teachers in California who are very proficient with the Zoom breakout room and the chat and all of these other functions to have group discussion. So you have said that you would like to see one to three hours of, of daily instruction, distance learning, and but the state isn't requiring that for all districts, should it? The legislation, I will say, punted to both the Department of Education a requirement for a template that will guide the instructional continuity plans that districts need to develop, uh, and also punted to the state board a much more elaborated articulation of what needs to go on, both in distance learning and in general around sort of the standards to be taught, the ways in which we should support the teaching of the standards and so on. So there will be more guidance coming out. In fact, we're about to release next week guidance on assessment, formative assessment. So how do you take stock when kids come back in the fall of where they are and then use that to guide instruction. The question of how many hours it will be, there are a number of districts in California. Long Beach is one that I know has a, sort of an expectation of an hour a day for the elementary school kids, a little bit more for the middle school kids, and as much as four hours a day of in synchronous instruction for the high school students. And there are other districts that have been structuring the curriculum in ways like that. And I think there will be variability around that, but we should set some parameters that help districts and some best practices, illustrate some best practices that allow districts to figure out how to do this well when that is the mode of instruction that they're engaged in. The state has done a really good job in sort of getting commitments from the internet companies to offer low rates or free rates for a while. And and Tony Thurman, and, and you've been involved as well, is, is trying to get Google and Facebook to donate computers and the like. But still, there are shy of hundreds of thousands of computers and internet connections. In your testimony before the Assembly Education Committee, you made it clear that you think at this point, it really is the district's obligations using their federal funding to provide the rest of these internet connections and computers so that their students are ready to learn distance learning. Is that the state's position, your personal opinion? or? Uh, well, I think uh, many of the state leaders are united in the view that this needs to happen, and certainly it is my personal view as well. Really, devices and connectivity now are the same as textbooks were. And remember the Williams lawsuit, where we said every kid has to have textbooks, and that was like a big aha in California. The state has stepped up in the CARES Act and the ESSERS funds, not only to allocate the amount that the federal government set aside for districts, but also to dip into the governor's fund around uh, learning loss and into the other part of the act. So there's a total of $4 billion going to districts. It probably will cost a total of two, $300 million to meet the need for devices and connectivity. So it's a tiny share of the total. Uh, and um, the expectation is that the first thing districts should do if they haven't done it yet is to close that digital divide so that then we won't have more learning loss Linda, you and I talked at the beginning of this pandemic, and one of the things you were talking about was hoping that this distant learning is going to require teachers to come up with new techniques to really motivate kids. I mean, last spring, there weren't grades. And so that was, how do you motivate kids in the absence of tests and grades? Well, I understand there are going to be grades, 
But still, working remotely to really engage kids when you aren't even seeing them face to face. Are you seeing any of that creativity coming out? And what should teachers be trying to do? I'm seeing just an amazing amount of creativity coming out. And the schools that were best positioned for the shutdown were the schools that engage in very authentic forms of teaching and learning. The schools like the linked learning schools, those that had portfolios for graduation, kids were already involved in their inquiries and investigations of various kinds. And they, you know, continued in their small groups and individually online, getting those projects completed and presenting them to their teachers and peers and so on at the end of the year in capstone projects. And there was really wonderful work going on and kids were totally motivated. They didn't need the grades. They they have rubrics that, you know, tell you how well you're doing that work and you can revise it and so on. But when it was authentic and meaningful, the teachers who engage kids in looking at what was going on in the world, you know, studying COVID itself, you know, from a literary and biological and mathematical and other perspectives. In Long Beach, they actually found that some of the teachers who were really expert in the distance learning were doing such great work that they gave them cameo spots where kids and teachers from other schools could come in and, for example, learn whatever it was they were teaching about, quadratic equations or whatever. They had 2,000 kids sometimes signing in to see a teacher who's really great at something teach that unit. And other teachers learning from those who were really doing this great work. And we need to think about this as such a great time for sharing, for sharing practices, sharing expertise, collaborating to lean to the best practices and make sure that those travel across schools, across classrooms, across districts, so that in the state as a whole, so many people are trying to learn how to do this new work that all of us can teach each other. Wouldn't it be great if we could really figure out how to get kids excited about learning and could somehow use this really terrible time we're in so that something actually positive comes out of it? And uh, you, you suggest we're seeing some glimmers of that, so something to build on. Indeed. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Linda Darling-Hammond, President of the State Board of Education, also President of the Learning Policy Institute. Thanks for your work, Linda. Really appreciate it. A lot of challenge facing the state, but got to press on. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I think we're up to it. That was a really interesting interview, Lewis. And, you know, districts don't only have to worry about the mechanics of reopening a school, but also whether parents will send their kids to school once it reopens. Yeah, and that's one of the toughest things to know is what parents are thinking. I imagine for many of them, they don't know themselves because so much could change by the first day of school. Some districts are sending out surveys and asking them what their preferences would be, and some aren't, and they're hearing complaints from parents when they don't. Reporter Zadie Stavely wrote an article this week. She talked with parents and looked at some of those surveys about parents' preferences for the return of school. Zadie, what did you find? Well, John, I found kind of a mix. So the surveys are really interesting because there was a nationwide USA Today poll that found that about six out of 10 parents with a child in K-12 grades said that they would they would rather pursue at-home learning than send their kids back to school. And that's a really big percentage. But in the surveys that school districts in California have sent out, it looks kind of the opposite. So about 
six out of 10 parents in Long Beach Unified, in Elk Grove Unified, and also in LA schools said that they would rather send their kids back to school. And then, you know, a smaller percentage, about 20 to 30% have said that they would rather stay at home and not send their kids back. I talked to parents all over the state, John, and there was a real mix. So, you know, people who want to keep their kids at home, it's basically just because of the health risk. So they're concerned that their kids are going to get sick. They're concerned that the teachers will get sick. And, you know, I know there's also teachers that are concerned about getting sick. They're really concerned about the spread of the virus. But for parents who are more interested in like a hybrid model or sending their kids back to school, it has to do with a lot of different things. So some parents told me that it was because they felt like the academics in person was just way better, that the distance learning was not good for their kids and that in-person interaction would be really helpful. And then there are people who are really, really feel like the social benefits of seeing friends and seeing, you know, adults, teachers in person outweighs the health risk. Well, some of the parents and perhaps even you as a parent, Zadie, are sort of just ambivalent. They feel a lot of different mixed emotions. Describe, if you can, maybe your own ambivalence. Yeah. So I have a fifth grader and also a preschooler. I go back and forth on this. And basically, it's just, I don't think that I could describe myself as being any place on the spectrum. Either one of the options are bad. I mean, sending my kid to school in the middle of a pandemic in which she might get sick or in which she might get teachers sick is not a good option. Keeping my kid at home with distance learning and trying to work at the same time is definitely not a good option. I mean, she's isolated. She's tired of being at home. I don't feel like she was learning as much as she would be if she was in school, even though the teachers did a great job and everything. But it's like, it's just not the same. And so I don't feel like I have like a great option in either case. And so trying to make the decision, it's sort of like you have to figure out which one outweighs the other. And of course, it's difficult because many districts haven't said exactly what the plan will be. And so they don't know what hybrid will look like and then what child care will look like. That must be the X factor in speaking with parents. Exactly. I talked with several parents who said, I don't have a choice. I have to work outside of the home. My kid is already in daycare all day. I worry about him, but I don't have another choice. Right. I talked with parents who would like to keep their kids at home, but don't feel like they can afford to. I talked with parents who don't really know what to do because, you know, one parent in Fresno told me, well, I want to believe that Fresno Unified will do whatever they can to keep my child safe. But without knowing, I I don't really know how to make the decision. At some point, districts need to know what parents are going to do because they need to plan whether it's, you know, 30% or 40% of the parents won't. And therefore, we need to figure for the remaining 70% of students coming, they've got to decide. And I guess at some point, they will ask parents to decide one way or the other. And I guess that's going to be a very difficult decision. I mean, I think that one of the main things that it comes down to, John, is that we don't know what that means for work. So the superintendent LA Unified said it the other day, I don't see how the districts could have childcare on campus because they're trying to keep fewer children on campus, right? And for parents, it's everything is really still up in the air because if they tell me, for example, your kids have to stay home two days a week and come to school three days a week, you know, what do I do the other two days? Am I supposed to telework? I mean, really, honestly, this is not sustainable for parents. We're working and at the same time, we're supposed to be, 
you know, parenting and hanging out with our kids and making them food to eat and also making sure that they are learning. That's definitely not sustainable. It makes sense during a pandemic. It makes sense during an emergency. But it's kind of like, how long is this going to go on? That was EdSource reporter Zadie Stavely. Thanks for your reporting, filling us in on what's on parents' minds. No problem, Don. Thanks for inviting me. You know, I don't know, sitting where we are here today with COVID cases spiraling seemingly out of control, it's hard to imagine how schools could open for in-class instruction under these conditions. So just the whole prospect of distance learning just seems to be looming larger and larger on the landscape. But the odd thing, John, it seems like the closer we get to the first day of school, the less certain everything seems, despite all the planning, despite all the guidances and advice that counties and the state are issuing. You know, Lewis, it's frustrating and it makes me angry that it's really adult misbehavior that's setting us back in California. What do you mean by misbehavior? Are you referring to uh, our president by any chance? Well, generically, yes. But in this case, it's really Californians who were, are not social distancing and not wearing masks. And it's really hurting kids, ultimately, because now it's really affecting schools opening. And whether or not school can open depends on whether we get back to normal. And now we're having a setback. And I think that, that adults ought to think about not only personal safety, but the impact on children when they're not wearing masks and following all the instructions. John, now you sound like our governor who has been scolding Californians for weeks and hasn't seemed to have had much impact. Uh, This weekend will be a big test to see whether um, his admonitions are having any impact. I'm not optimistic. Well, I'm going to look for a silver lining. Uh, We kind of touched on this in our conversation with Linda Darling-Hammond. You know, one of the things I think that might come out of this is a new and greater appreciation for schools and teachers. Uh, I mean, schools are obviously, you know, we kind of take them for granted, part of the landscape. But the fact that sort of such a core institution in our society has been so shaken and threatened, I think hopefully this will give people a renewed appreciation for the importance of schools and the importance of teachers. And on that note, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald, still coordinating things remotely, and looks like he'll be doing that for quite a few more weeks. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. Lewis, have a happy holiday weekend, and I'm still John Fensterwald. Okay, glad to hear it. Stay safe. Stay well. We'll be back next week.